Welcome to Family History Mysteries, a podcast that tells the stories uncovered through family history research, the unexpected stories of everyday people. I'm an avid family historian who's been compiling my family tree for over 15 years, with now nearly 20,000 people collectively recorded in my trees. Today's episode is titled Murder. As the name suggests, it does contain some graphic details that may be distressing to some. The person we're talking about today is Elizabeth Louisa Preston, who was known to her family as Louisa. And back in episode two, parts one and two, George Thomas Preston was mentioned, and Elizabeth Louisa Preston is George Thomas Preston's niece. Sometimes when doing your family tree research, you uncover the unexpected, and this is certainly the case for this individual. It was very sensational at the time and certainly received a lot of coverage. So I'll be telling you about that sensational story today. Elizabeth Louisa Preston was born in 1875 in Moama, New South Wales, which is a border town with the Chika and Moama separated by the Murray River. I'm just going to give you a little bit of background now on the reason why Elizabeth was born in Moama. Her father was William Preston and her mother, Elizabeth Parr. Both grandparents or grandfathers were well known in the Moama area. Her grandfather, George Preston, started off as a servant in England and he married Rachel Carter at St James Westminster in London on the 17th of June 1838. Six years later, he was working as a cooper, which is a maker and repairer of casks and barrels in Limehouse, East London. By 1887, he was working at the Vauxhall Distillery in Liverpool, Lancashire, England, as a distillery labourer. He rose quickly as he was an engineer at the distillery at the time that he and Hannah immigrated and arrived in Melbourne on the 22nd of December, 1852, with their children. And Louisa's father, William, was one of those children. George worked as a plumber when he first arrived. But by 1857, he had purchased land at Moama in New South Wales. So within five years of arriving in Melbourne, his skills that he developed in England came into the fore and he started to become successful in a range of areas. So it must have been profitable because he opened Preston's Melbourne distillery on the banks of the Yarra River in Abbotsford. So using his labouring skills and obviously having an understanding of how distilleries worked from his time in London, he saw an opportunity in Melbourne. He advertised his skills as a distiller and stated that he had been an employee of the Anais Coffee and Sons Whiskey Company in London as an apparatus builder and a distiller and that he came with first class references. In 1863, he advertised the sale of coffee patent stills, which were used to distill the spirits. He listed himself as a practical distiller from coffees in London. So he must have, have left his distiller interest in London with quite a good name and possibly contacted London to see whether he could strike up a little bit of a deal so he could market some of the products in Victoria. He advertised in 1864 that he had built Vauxhall Distillery at Abbotsford in Victoria. So again, looking at his background, 
the fact that he worked at Vauxhall Distillery in London to name his own distillery uh, after his experiences there it must have been positive for him. It is mentioned that the Prestons had been distillers in England since the 16th century. George's forebears operated the largest malt distillers in Britain in the 1800s. So the Vauxhall Distillery in Melbourne was a three-storey bluestone distillery, which now houses the site of the Carlton and United Breweries. There is a, a historical survey that was done on old architecture in Melbourne, and it does mention that there's a section of bluestone still that exists as part of that distillery. He continued expanding his land interests in Moama, New South Wales, and that is where we end up finding that Elizabeth Louisa was born in Moama, as her father, William Preston, came up and purchased his own land, obviously with a little bit of assistance from his father. So William married Elizabeth Parr at the residence of um, Elizabeth's brother William in Moama in November 1869. And William himself, he was born on the 12th of February 1843. And William was born at the Isle of Dogs in Vauxhall, England, so at the time that his father George was working at the distillery. William purchased 100 acres of land of his own at Tatela on the corner of Perakuta and Marul Roads near Moama in 1872. And this area of Moama now is certainly well developed with a lot of brand new houses dotting the landscape there. So to give you a little bit of background information on Elizabeth, Louise's mother Elizabeth Parr was born in Moama in 1853. She was the third child of 12. Her parents were Frederick William Parr and Mary Hoyle. Frederick Parr was an agricultural labourer and Mary a housekeeper when they emigrated to Australia in 1849 when Frederick was 24. Mary gave birth to a child on the voyage and it only survived eight days. Frederick Parr did very well for himself in Moama. He was a, a carrier and there's one advertisement in a Moama paper that mentions that he was that maiden's punt. Maiden's Punt was an area where there was a stock crossing, a very busy stock crossing that would take cattle and sheep down to the Bendigo and Ballarat gold diggings. So by the time Louisa was born in 1875, William had purchased land out at Moira. Moira Station Run was in between Moama and Mathara in New South Wales. Elizabeth was the fourth child born to the family at this time. The oldest child was stillborn and she had two older siblings. Of the 12th of July, 1882, all seemed well at the farm of William Preston. The children had got organised and were on their way to go to school when tragedy struck for little seven-year-old Elizabeth. So I'm now going to be reading you some excerpts out of newspaper articles to give you an understanding of what happened in this tragedy. So on the 19th of July, 1882, the title of the newspaper article says Frightful Tragedy Near Mathara. Information of a frightful tragedy at Moira, about nine or ten miles from Mathara, has been received by the Deniliquin police. It appears that a farmer named Preston, residing near Moira, had a person in his employ known as Fred. On Tuesday morning, the man was engaged cutting firewood near the house of his employer, and he was accompanied by two or three of Mr Preston's children. 
There are no reliable accounts of what actually took place between Fred and the child, but the mother was alarmed by the screams of the other children and on rushing out to see what was the matter, she was horrified in learning that her little daughter Louisa, her name was Elizabeth Louisa, but the family called her Louisa, had been brutally struck down with an axe by the miscreant in her husband's employ. The ruffian instantly decamped and the child was removed by Mr Preston to the Echuca Hospital, where she was attended by Drs Hogg and Osborne. On examination, it was found that the child's skull was fractured and that the brains were protruding through a terrible hole over the centre of the head. The Echuca and Moama police at once started in pursuit, but no traces of the accused would be, could be found by them. In the afternoon, Constable Robertson received information to the effect that the man Fred was in Mathara, still armed with an axe with which the crime was perpetrated. Constable Robertson immediately went in pursuit and effected the arrest without much trouble, having approached him unawares and from behind. The axe which was taken for him was covered with blood and hair. The prisoner was to be brought before Mr Donaldson at Mathara. In an Achika paper on uh, the 14th, 15th of July 1882, it says the child Louisa Preston, who was murderously assaulted by a swagman, still lingers on at the hospital and is at times unconscious. Little hopes are entertained of her recovery. This morning the man was brought down from Mathara to Moama in charge of Constable Robinson and presented at the Moama Police Court where a large crowd had gathered to get a glimpse of him. On being placed in the dock on the charge of wounding with intent to murder, he gave the name of Henry Tester. Senior Constable Devine informed the bench that the hospital surgeon had little hope for the child's recovery and asked for a remand of eight days, which was granted. Yesterday, Mr Donaldson of Moama visited the hospital for the purpose of taking the child's depositions. He was unable to do so on account of the critical condition of the child. And just as an aside, the term swagman is a term that denotes a drifter or someone that has all of his belongings on his back. And quite often in these fairly isolated farming areas, you would have men drifting from town to town looking for odd jobs on farms. And I'm sure that we in Preston would have had men coming in and out all of the time. Unfortunately, what the family were unaware of was that this certainly wasn't a swagman that you wanted to have anywhere near your family. And on Wednesday, the 26th of July in 1882, in the New South Wales Police Gazette and Weekly Record of Crime, so a week later, it says that Henry Tester, charged with the willful murder of Louisa Preston of Moira, on the 12th instant, has been arrested by Constable Robertson at Mathara Police and is committed for trial at Denelequent Circuit Court. So unfortunately, as suspected, Louisa couldn't survive those awful injuries. The man Fred, who was committed for trial some time ago for the murder of the little girl Louisa Preston at Moira, is now confined in the Deniliquin Jail. And this is recorded on the 9th of September, 1882, so several months later. The circumstances of the murder were narrated at the time of the occurrence. The child, with others, was going to school, and in passing the murderer's house, they threw some gravel on the roof. The man rushed out with an axe in his hand and split the child's skull with it. He has much improved in appearance under jail discipline. 
It has been asserted that he was insane at the time of the murder, but so far has not shown any indications of insanity since his confinement. He's being watched and his actions noted. It is likely that anticipation of the plea of insanity being urged on his behalf when his trial occurs in October, a commission of inquiry will be appointed and a proper examination of the fellow's mental condition is made. So a little over a month later at Denelequin on Friday the 20th of October 1882. At the Assizes today before Sir George Innes, Henry Tester, indicted for murdering Louisa Preston at Moira in July, refused to plead to the charge and continued making incoherent noises in the dock, thus raising difficulty as to what plea he was making, causing a question to arise regarding his sanity. He could not or would not read, and much difficulty was experienced as the proper way to proceed. While the discussion was proceeding, the prisoner made several remarks which could not be understood. Henry Tester was asked a second time whether he was guilty or not guilty. He said, anything you like. And a few minutes afterwards, when the judge was referring to the sheriff's duties, he said, get the sheriff and hang me up to the bloody roof. And at another time he said, your honour, you can let the lot go. I'll take my chance. Do the best you can. And the comment made by the person writing the article was, his mind is apparently unhinged. The jailer stated the accused had been feigning insanity. When the prisoner was first admitted, he spoke rationally, but had in the two months he had been there become moody and refused to speak. Mr Gibson, instructed by Mr Ochiltree, assigned as counsel, decided to have the court adjourned until the next day, the Saturday, to decide as to the mode of proceeding under the peculiar circumstances of the case. The Crown Prosecutor, needed time to consider the question of appointing a jury expressly to find out whether the accused is sane enough to stand his trial. The prisoner responded by telling the judge to do as he liked and that they could hang him if they liked. So on the Saturday with the decision, it was decided to go to trial with the jury. The prisoner behaved in such a strange manner by again refusing to answer whether he was guilty or not, apparently feigning insanity and, had, and there was some difficulty was experienced in proceeding with the charge. However, a jury was impaneled to decide whether he was or was not in a fit state for the trial to be proceeded with. After medical evidence and that of the jail officials that had been taken, it proved beyond a doubt that the prisoner was only feigning insanity and the jury decided he was sane. The charge was then proceeded with, resulting in a verdict of guilty. The prisoner was sentenced to death. The judge stated that without the slightest hope of mercy, the crime was one of the most atrocious that he had ever had under his notice. So very strong words there from an impassioned reader or an impassioned editor of the newspaper in such a, a lowly populated area and very much a rural farming land in those days. This certainly would have been a, an awful case to report on and a sensational story for all. A month later, on the 8th of December, 1882, the following was reported. In Deniliquin, at nine o'clock this morning, the extreme sentence of the law was passed upon Henry Tester, alias Robert Seary, at the last assizes here for the brutal murder of a little girl named Louisa Preston at Moira, was carried into effect. Ever since his condemned date, con
in the case of the Manchester, who was sentenced to death for the murder of the poor child Louisa Preston at Moira in July last, is one which commends itself to every unbiased mind who is seized, seized with the facts of the atrocity. The convict is of a class from amongst whom murder is a cold, of an idle disposition, unwilling to work for his livelihood, of vicious tendencies, and of an ungovernable temper. He is just the man upon whom to look with suspicion and against whom to guard on any outburst of anger. And it is a matter for congratulation that a wise legislation has persevered in its efforts to maintain the inalienable right in certain cases of inflicting the terrible punishment of death. The case under notice is certainly one in which the extreme penalty is not only advisable, but indispensable. Without such a deterrent penalty, life is unsafe, and without an utter absence of sentimentality, even with the sentence of death recorded, society is absolutely at the mercy of the utterly depraved and the morally debased. In the present case, there was an almost unparalleled absence of provocation. The poor child was on her way to school, and childlike, she played an innocent prank on one of her father's employees. Instead of the ruffian taking the jest as a childlike familiarity, his murderous proclivities and disposition impelled an attack on the inoffensive girl with a murderous weapon, and he brutally consummated his efforts by ruthlessly cleaving her head, crashing the axe through her skull, penetrating the brain and causing her death. Not content with his hideous behaviour, he fiendishly struck her again and again with the axe after she had fallen and then pursued her retreating sister with a view, no doubt, of repeating the malevolent attack. Fortunately, the second child escaped and communicated her melancholy experience to her bewildered parents, who subsequently took steps for the arrest of the diabolical assassination of their child. Summary punishment, even if it had resulted in the death of the villain, would have received public assent, and no one, we feel assured, would have been found to say that unmerited injustice had been inflicted. The conduct of the prisoner from the beginning has illustrated his appreciation of the situation. Feigned insanity has now become a last resort of murderers and a final plea for their counsel. Fortunately, the present case was observed by skillful and intelligent experts from the beginning, and the child murderer, without an extenuating plea, has been ordered to prepare for the unerring doom of the diabolically inclined. No one has a feeling of compunction on his behalf. He has severed himself from society, estranged himself from fellow men, alienated himself from sympathy and ensnared himself within the coils of the penalties of a dishonest existence. His ex execution is without a pang of regret and his removal from the midst, even of criminal humanity, is an event which must be received with satisfaction, even if tempered with sadness of the abrupt termination of a criminal life by every member of an intelligent community. It was recorded in a paper. At nine o'clock this morning, the extreme sentence of the law was passed upon Henry Tester, alias Robert Seary, at the last assizes here for the murder, brutal murder of a little girl named Louisa Preston at Moira and was carried into effect. Ever since his condemnation, the convict's demeanour has been sulky. He has refused to answer questions or take the slightest heed of the Reverend Mr. Weston's ministrations.
he maintained the same demeanour throughout and refrained from speaking a single word on the gallows. He came to Sydney from Brighton, England in 1874 and was aged 30 years. For the first two to three minutes after the bolt had been drawn, Tester struggled violently. On account of some bungling on the part of the executioner and through the thickness of the rope and the lightness of the culprit's body, seven stone, the painful proceedings were disgustingly prolonged and some 35 minutes elapsed before Dr Noyes, the jail surgeon, pronounced life was extinct. On examination, it was found that the neck was not broken by the fall and the death must have resulted from suffocation. It was indeed a ghastly sight and the few civilians present expressed their opinions that the hanging was a bungling piece of business. And particularly the mother, Elizabeth Parr, um, I'm just going to read an account that I found, and, and this was actually only four days before she married William, uh, an encounter with another man that was uh, equally as unpredictable. So on the 10th of November 1869, the Riverine Herald, the Achuca newspaper, reported roughly conduct to a young girl. In the Moema Police Court on Monday, before Mr. Walsall PM, Pietro Rigasani was brought up under a warrant charged with abusive and threatening language on Sunday to Elizabeth Parr. Mr. H.P. Taylor appeared for the prosecution and elicited from the complainant and her witnesses that the prisoner had followed Miss Parr from morning service at Echuca, and when she, accompanied by Miss Louisa Preston and her sister, had arrived halfway between the punt and the courthouse, the prisoner came up and endeavoured to draw prosecutor into conversation, and finding his attempts unsuccessful, began to abuse her and seized her by the wrist, swearing that by Christ, if she would not have him, he would kill her. She released herself and with her companions hurried towards home, with the prisoner following, continuing his abuse and threats, and when near the lagoon, he threatened to throw them in. On arriving at her home, the prisoner became very excited and swore that if he did not have her, no one else should, and told her mother she did not know what his countrymen could do, what they threatened and that what they carried out, that her daughter should never see 1870. The prisoner made a rambling statement, excusing himself as having been in fun, and that he was very fond of the girl and would not hurt her. The police magistrate said he thought the case was one for the highest punishment he could inflict, and he therefore fined him five pounds or three months in Denelequin jail. The same man was immediately afterwards brought before the police magistrate on an information by Elizabeth Parr to bind him to the peace and the police magistrate, after bearing a recapitulation of part of evidence in the last case and ordered him to fine sureties, himself in £50 and two in £2 each, to keep the peace to Elizabeth Parr and all others for 12 months. The prisoner was then removed in custody and the court adjourned. By the mid to late 1880s, William was not only running the Vauxhall Distillery in Abbotsford with his brothers, um, there was also a plant in Gippsland and he was also continuing his pastoral interests around Moama in New South Wales. So he was quite high up in the Vauxhall distillery business. In fact, one article saying that he was running it. In 1888, William made the decision to remove himself from the interests of the distillery 
and he also sold the farm at Moira and he moved the family to Quandry South near Tamora in New South Wales. In the article outlining Louise's death, it mentions how she was with her siblings on the way to school that day. She had two older siblings. The oldest in the family was Frederick. He was 11 years old at the time of the murder. And possibly the trauma of this event could have been one of the reasons how uh, his life unfolded, um, as well as an accident um, at Moira Station when he was 16 years old. These possibly could have been indicators to how uh, life unfolded for him. When the family was still living at Moira Station, Frederick had an accident with his horse. Frederick was thrown from his horse and he was missing for four days. The family had the assistance of an Aboriginal tracker to find him and the doctor suspected that he had been concussed and unconscious for three days. Um, so quite, quite a pretty heavy injury uh, for a 16-year-old. There was an article that was in the Bendigo Advertiser on uh, the 3rd of April, 1887 at Echuca. It says, On Wednesday morning, a youth aged 16 years named Frederick Preston, son of Mr William Preston, a large farmer and grazier residing at Moira, New South Wales, left his home on horseback to muster sheep on his father's estate. As he did not return that night, his parents became anxious and on the following morning a search party was organised and the country scoured, but there was no trace of the missing youth discovered. The following day, several search parties, including Mr William Warren, manager of Moira Station, and the hands employed on the station, went out but returned at dusk unsuccessful. On Friday, the Moama police and a number of Aboriginals from the Maloga Mission Station went out and found the horse hung up to a fence where the animal was caught while feeding along the fence. The next day the party was increased in numbers and at about 11 o'clock young Preston was discovered lying unconscious in a reed bed where he had evidently been thrown from his horse which must have stumbled in one of the crab holes which abounded near the spot. Dr Graham of Echuca holds out hopes for Preston's recovery. In a follow-up article it mentions the youth, Frederick Preston, who suffered severely from a fall from his horse on Wednesday last and who was not found until Saturday, was brought into a chuka. He has now recovered consciousness, but is unable to give any information respecting the accident. The half-caste Bobby Cooper, one of the men at the Maloga Mission Station who found Preston, states that the boy's head came into contact with a tree from which a piece of bark had been knocked off. The article also features in the Riverine Herald, the Yachuca newspaper, titled The Moira Missing Case. The young man, Frederick Preston, who was lost in the bush on his father's estate for three days, will stay with his aunt, Mrs King of Crossenvale. The youth is progressing favourably and will continue to be attended by Dr Graham. However, he did recover and moved with his parents to Tamora. And as an adult, he was a hotel keeper and a farmer. He married Emmeline Bowman in 1897 in Melbourne and he was 26 when he married Emmeline and they had two children. In 1900, there was an interesting article in the paper referring to Frederick. The title of the article is A Claim by an Informer. An interesting case cropped up today. 
Frederick W. Preston of Tamora, according to a petition he is now making to the Queen, recently gave information to Detective Christie, which led to a customs fraud being discovered and stopped and a fine of £2,250 imposed. The petitioner says he gave the information on the understanding that he should receive a third of the fine. The commissioner only paid him £250. By his petition, he seeks the balance £500. The Crown Law authorities answered the petition by saying that the £250 was accepted in full settlement. Then the petitioner replied, stating that he was induced to accept that by reason of duress on part of the commissioner, who in the course of an interview on the 19th of June said he was not entitled to make a claim as he was an accomplice and might be prosecuted, but allowed him to have £250. The Attorney General moved today to have the particulars of the duress struck out or that leave be given him to deliver rejoinder. The Petitioner's Council consented to the latter course and the court confirmed it. Another article a couple of days later says, I am satisfied about suing the Queen. This was the expressive language that Frederick William Preston of Tomorrow New South Wales says relinquishing an action which he recently started against the Victorian Customs Department for £500, uh, which he asserted was due to him as the balance of a third share of £2,250, which had to be paid by Henry Arthur Preston on the ground that he had defrauded the revenue. The petitioner had been paid £250 by the Customs Department. He said that he accepted it under duress and they would give him no more. After waiting 17 days in Melbourne for the case to come, come on, he returned home and abandoned his claim in the words that were mentioned. Yesterday, the Chief Justice entered up for the judgment for the Crown with costs. So what does this all mean? Well, Henry Arthur Preston was his uncle and Henry was heavily involved in the Abbotsford Distillery. So as part of the law, you had to pay customs duty on any goods that were coming in. And so basically what happened was that Frederick was a whistleblower against his own family, uh, hoping that by being the whistleblower and come to, coming to an agreement that he would be able to pocket a third of those uh, the revenue of that. It didn't work out the way he expected. And so this is quite worrying uh, what is happening in Frederick's life at the moment um, that makes him so desperate that he will make claims and take on uh, in court his own family. Well, I think we have our answer because uh, in 1909, him and Emmeline divorced. The particulars of the divorce were placed in the Evening News, the Sydney newspaper, on the 11th of June, 1909. Um, and remember, in, in back in 1909, the divorce laws uh, were very strict. You, you needed to have a fault or a reason for the divorce proceedings to occur. It wasn't until the mid-1970s when no-fault divorce came in, making it a lot easier and a lot less public. So the article is titled... Not ecstatic bliss. Frederick William Preston, a produce dealer, sued for a divorce from Emma Preston, formerly Bowman, on the ground of desertion. 
The petitioner deposed to having married the respondent in June 1897 in Melbourne, according to the rights of the Christian Church. He was then a farmer at Tamora. Counsel asked, did anything happen in 1902? My wife said she was suffering from consumption of the throat. I arranged for her to come to Sydney with my mother. What then? asked counsel. She did not write, remained several days longer than she promised. I suppose you spoke to her? I asked her if anything particular had happened in Sydney. At first she denied it, but afterwards admitted it. She asked me for the fare and said that she would go to Melbourne. I gave it to her, but she proceeded to Sydney. The Honour said, did she leave with your consent? Frederick answered, no. But you gave her the fare? And he said, I didn't want to see her starve. Then you put her out? And he said, after what happened, tell us what happened in Sydney. Did she go to the theatre or not? And he said she admitted that she had misconducted herself. Up to this, had you lived happily with her? Frederick responded, not exactly ecstatic bliss, Your Honour, but I think we were pretty happy. The petitioner proceeded to say that his wife pleaded with him and he took her back. In 1904, she wanted him to allow her one pound a week and that she would live in Melbourne. He would not agree to that. However, she left him altogether in the next year. She said that she was tired of living in the country. The decree Nisi was granted to be moved absolute in six months' time. And on the 20th of May, 1912, Frederick was found in his room at the Royal Exchange Hotel in Tamora. The coroner's verdict was suicide by poisoning. In an article in the Daily Telegraph in Sydney, it says Tuesday at Tamora, the coroner held an inquest this morning touching the death of Frederick William Preston, who was found dead in a bedroom at the Royal Exchange Hotel yesterday afternoon. The deceased, who was a well-known and respected farmer, left a letter addressed to Mr John Harmon, in which he stated at the heading, Cyanide is what I am taking. I have had nearly three years of mental strain and can stand it no longer. I appoint you and my brother George executors of my will, which is in favour of my two children. I have prepared myself for the next world. I know I will be happy. Tell my relations not to worry. Death must be like heaven compared with what I have gone through. Say goodbye to all my friends. Look after my children. God bless them. The letter also contained a reference to insurance on the property, bank balances and other matters requiring attention. The deceased owned a farm of about 1,000 acres at Quandry between Tamora and Araya Park. He was divorced from his wife about three years ago. Evidence was given that he bought half a pound of cyanide from a chemist, which he said was for poisoning crows. A verdict of suicide from poisoning was returned. So could the accident that he had from the fall when he was young have caused some mental health issues later in life? Um, as at 11 years old, after witnessing that attack on his sister, certainly would have been a traumatising event as well. And then having his wife leave him and having to go through divorce proceedings and quite possibly having very little or no contact with his children weighed heavily on him. Frederick's two children, Gladys Myrtle, was married in Sydney uh, at the age of 22 in 1921 and after her marriage lived near Newcastle. Claude Reginald 
Uh, even though he no doubt would have been brought up by his mother, he married in Tamora at the age of 29 and farmed land at Tamora uh, quite possibly uh, with the proceeds of uh, his father's estate. The sister that was chased by Henry Tester in the outline of the article but luckily got away to report to her parents was Mary. Mary was 10 years old at the time of the murder. She married Arthur Walker at her parents' home at Tamora, New South Wales, on August 1898 when she was 25. Arthur was a farmer and they farmed at Araya Park in New South Wales and had five children. At the time of Elizabeth's death, or Louisa's death, William and Elizabeth Senior had three younger children, William six, Harriet three and Arthur one, and then went on to have three more children, George, Albert and Mabel after Louisa's death. Of the 10 children, three died at birth. William Preston died on the 23rd of July, 1926 in Randwick, Sydney at the age of 83. William's wife, Elizabeth, died on the 26th of June, 1927 at the residence of her son, William, at Tamora. Both William and Elizabeth are buried at Tamora. In those days, you know, it was a really awful thing for William and Elizabeth to experience. They had two stillborn children. They had one child at nine months old. And then, of course, they had Louisa die in such awful circumstances at seven years old. If you would like your family story shared by me on this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Please go to the Family History Mysteries Facebook page. And if you are also looking at delving into your family tree, you've always wondered whether you have stories like this hidden away um, also visit my Facebook page so you can message me. I have a lovely photo of Louisa and also uh, photos of her parents and I will put those on my Facebook page for you to see.